0: Everything that is happening in chapter 40 and on is really the culminating result and response to everything that has come before. Namely, we saw in chapters 38 and 39 how Hezekiah, king of Judah, he failed his God. God delivered him from the the cruelty and the evil intentions of Assyria But Hezekiah did not put his trust in God, but once again turned to Babylon for help. God delivered Hezekiah from mortal illness, but instead of giving glory to God, he became proud and heartless. So not only did Hezekiah fail his God, he failed his nation. When God warned Hezekiah That because of his sin and pride, his nation will be taken as captives into Babylon. And that his own children will be taken as captives, be castrated, be made eunuchs, and, and made to serve the harem of Babylon. Hezekiah said, well, all these things will happen after I am gone. What do I care? Not my problem. Hezekiah failed his God. He failed his nation. He failed his family. And because of that, the nation was left without hope. His children was left without a future. And God responds to that, that hopeless, that futureless reality in Isaiah chapter 40. And he says in verse one, "Comfort. Comfort my people." And the message is, where Hezekiah failed, God will not fail. And so God sent these words, comfort, comfort my people. And it was a promise. But it was a promise that will take a long time to be fulfilled. And it was a promise that for Isaiah's immediate audience was merely words. Because they will not live to see these words fulfilled. But as we continue to read uh, this passage, we realize how God's promise alone, even though for Isaiah's audience, it was mere words yet to be fulfilled, and yet the promise was enough to change their lives, change their hearts. And for you and for me, we learn in this passage that God's word is enough To change us and strengthen us in our hard trials. So there are three things that we are going to see in this passage about God's Word. Why God's Word is simply enough, it is sufficient. First, God's Word endures. So that is the first thing we see, God's enduring Word. So if you remember, if you notice, chapter 40, verse 6, it says, A voice says. Now we all know what Isaiah means by that voice. He means God. And so the question is, why doesn't it just say, God says? Well, it seems to me that Isaiah's use of the word voice, when he says, a voice says, it's actually deliberate. And it's very meaningful because as you realize in this passage, God's word, his word itself is the focal point of this passage. So look at verse 8. The word of our God will stand forever. That's what this passage is pointing at. That's the, that's the important lesson. And then in verse 9, Isaiah calls to Zion and calls them the herald. Of good news. Once again, the focus is on God's word. And so when Isaiah says in verse 6, a voice says, his use of the word voice is deliberate. It ties the unfading word of verse 8 and it ties the good news of verse 9 together and it identifies God as the one whose words endure. And it identifies God as uh, one whose words speak good news. And so this is what, uh, what is important for us to recognize. As I said before, the promises of Isaiah chapter 40 will not be fulfilled within the lifetime of Isaiah's original audience. And that... Is significant. Because as far as you are concerned, it's just words. How can mere words change the way you endure suffering? How can mere words give you strength in the hard reality that is before you of exile, death, and pain? How can mere words The fulfillment of which you will not see within your lifetime. How can mere words help you? What helps? And the the reason that God's word is sufficient and enough is the fact that God's word endures. God's word never fades. And so it is the character of the word of God To last, to endure, and not change until everything that God has promised is fulfilled. That is what tells Isaiah's audience that God's promise is reliable. And so we read, A voice says, Cry. And Isaiah asks, What shall I cry? The voice answers, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty. It's like the flower of the field. Isn't it interesting? I think uh, we have a way of thinking about ourselves and about our own existence. And I think uh, in our own minds, we, and when I say in our own minds, I I mean collectively as mankind, we tend to think of ourselves like the 2,000-year-old giant redwoods of California coast. Hardy. Immensely impressive. The, the trees that have stood the test of innumerable drought, earthquake, storms, and the relentless march of time. And so we think of ourselves with unwarranted pride and we make, our, make so much of our own accomplishments, that's how we think about ourselves. That's how we think of our own existence and accomplishment. But Isaiah tells us here that that is a sad illusion, because we are nothing like the mighty red uh, tr- uh, redwoods of the forest. We are," Isaiah says, we are grass. And the best things about us are like the flower of the field that is here today and gone tomorrow. So Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. You remember back in Genesis how God's Spirit breathed into dust and God's breath and God's Spirit In the Hebrew language, the word breath and spirit are the same. So when in Genesis we read God breathed into him, it's meant to communicate to us that dust becomes a living being by the power of God's spirit. And just as God, his spirit breathed life into dust, here Isaiah says that he can blow upon people and we fade away like grass our being, our existence, our accomplishment last only for a very brief moment. Now if you think about this, this is rather depressing, isn't it? And from one perspective, it is depressing because we are not the big deal that we think we are. But Isaiah's aim Is not to make us Throw up our hands In the air In despair And say What is the point If we are That insignificant If we are like grass If we are like The flower of the field That is here today And gone tomorrow What is the point Of doing anything That's not Isaiah's aim To make us depressed And to make us give up But what Isaiah is doing Is He's making a contrast Isn't he while we quickly pass away, while the best things about us are like the withered and wilting grass of the field, God endures. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And that is really the point, isn't it? If a mere man comforted Jerusalem, If a mere man came to Jerusalem after everything that Hezekiah has done, if a mere man came to Jerusalem after everything that Jerusalem was facing and said, everything's going to work out, what comfort is that? Because even our best plans and intentions do not last. But the one who says, comfort, comfort my people, he is no mere man whose existence and whose best accomplish accomplishments pass away in a moment. The one who speaks these words, the one who promises, is the God whose word endures forever, God whose word will stand forever. And when he says, comfort, comfort my people, now you begin to realize that his promises can never fail. His promises are reliable. And even though for now all you have is the promise, because you have the promise, because the God who has spoken the promise is the God who lives forever, God whose word never fades away, even though all you have for the moment is the promise, that is enough. You have everything that can change your future and your life. So that is the first thing we see, God's enduring word. Secondly, we see God's good word, God's good word. As we've been uh, observing, God's word endures. That means his comfort will come. And that leads, this assurance leads to something That was just not possible before. Isaiah declares, God through Isaiah says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Now think about what those words mean because Zion at this time was very hard-pressed. Leadership has failed you. Your future is bleak. And Jerusalem's situation was not something to celebrate. And for many years, for many generations, Jerusalem has had no good news to shout to the world. But because God's promise is always fulfilled, Jerusalem can and we can take bold steps by faith when the situation looks bleak. And so the command, Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And so this is what is happening. God's enduring commitment to bless Jerusalem gives her a new calling. Uh, Jerusalem, left to herself, is an object lesson on foolishness. Any thinking person will look at the history of Jerusalem Any reflective person will see everything that has happened to Jerusalem and then they will shake their heads and say, you know, that's what happens when you give your life to sin and to foolishness. I mean, who's surprised? And any reflective person will tell their children, don't be like Jerusalem. You see, how stubborn they were? You see how foolish they were? And yet they persisted in sin. And what do, have to, what do they have to show for it now except disaster, except ruin? You see, that's what Jerusalem is at this point. An object lesson of sin's destruction sin's ruin and sin's damage but you see here God changes the narrative because Jerusalem up to this point has been a case study on the bitter fruit of sin but God does something remarkable And because of what God is doing, Jerusalem will not be remembered as a has-been who squandered all gifts and all privileges. Rather, because of what God is doing, she will be known as herald of good news. And because of what God is doing, the stories people will tell about Jerusalem will not be, look what sin has done. Look how sin has ended Jerusalem. Look what sin has done to destroy. Because of what God is doing, the stories that people will tell about Jerusalem will be how marvelous God Has shown grace. How marvelous God has redeemed. How amazing that God has rescued, God has restored. How marvelous that Jerusalem has become the herald of the good things that God has done for her. That's how God changes the narrative. Jerusalem. A case study, an object lesson on sin's destruction of what happens when you commit yourself to sin and foolishness. But God comes with grace, changes the story so that what will Jerusalem be known for in the future? Not what sin has done, but what God has done. Not what foolishness has done, but what God's grace has done. And so when God changes the narrative, He gives Jerusalem a noble purpose. And that is the good news. What sin has ruined, God restores. What we lost in sin, God returns. And God replaces our sorrows with joy. Jerusalem was once known for her sin and for the disasters that came upon her. She will be known in the future for God's redeeming grace, for the good things, gracious things, wonderful things that God has done for her. Doesn't that just give you hope and joy in your heart? Aren't you also left to yourself an object lesson of what sin can do? But isn't it amazing what God's grace has done and is doing in you? Because you will not be known as a case study of what happens when sin runs amok, but rather... You will be known as the herald of good news, what God can done, what God can do amidst ruin and chaos. That's God's good word. And finally, the third uh, character of God's word, the third thing that we see about God's word is that God's word is gentle. God's a gentle word. Now, let me put it this way. There is a sense in which God's Word is hard. It's hard like diamond. Every attempt to silence God's Word, every attempt to change or overrule God's Word, will have as much success as assaulting a boulder with a wilted blade of grass, hoping to make a dent. God's word is hard in that sense. And that's the sense of what Isaiah says when he says, Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. What he's saying, he's saying that to the people who might be tempted to doubt, what good is mere word of promise? We've all been disappointed with promises, broken promises. But Isaiah is saying that God's word is hard. Any attempt to resist it, change it, misdirect it will fail. Fail. And so God's promise to comfort His people, God's promise to bless His people cannot be stopped, will not be stopped, will not be frustrated, and it will happen. That's the sense of, uh, behind Isaiah's words when he says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. So God's word is hard. And I hope you Take to the meaning that I'm trying to convey here. But from a different perspective, God's word is very mild. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, he will gather their lambs in his arms, he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. God is neither cruel nor unfeeling when he shepherds his people. How so? You know, in this passage we've been seeing the great contrast between God and mankind. God, the eternal one, whose existence, whose word endure. Mankind, ephemeral temporary, here today and gone tomorrow. The best things about us are like the weed of the field. So this passage has been drawing a contrast, an insurmountable gap between the high and the exalted God and mankind low, weak, and insignificant. And before it's such a oh God, we can't help but be filled but feel helpless. But Isaiah says that God, He is not cruel and He is not unfeeling as He deals with our weaknesses. And the reason is that the God of heaven, He came down to earth. You know, that was the promise of this chapter. The God who dwells in light He came to dwell among men. The God who does not sleep. When he came to this earth, that God, he passed out in deep slumber of utter exhaustion. The God who knows all things past, present, and future. That God, he wondered if it's possible for not to drink the cup. That was given to Him. The God who dwells in eternity was snuffed out like a worthless weed. You see, Jesus, He knows our fears intimately. He knows what keeps us up at night. He knows what makes us feel lost. And he knows what sinks our heart in darkness. Jesus knows our sorrows because he has lived them. And that is why he is able to deal gently with those who are weak and with those who are suffering, with those who have sunk into darkness, with those who see no hope, with those who wonder what lies ahead. Those who can see what tomorrow will bring. Those who are afraid that God's will might be so painful. Jesus knows all of that. And he deals with us gently. If we are honest, it's really hard. Sometimes it's almost impossible to cling to hope. The situation seems so beyond redemption and we lose heart. But loved ones, hold on to God's promises. Right now, it's just words because you haven't seen it fulfilled yet. But hold on to God's promises, namely, that He, Jesus, will gather the lambs in His arms, He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. These words may not feel like much to you right now, but remember, remember who it is that has promised because the God who promises this to you, He is the God whose words endure. And so, because of that, you and I can begin to act boldly by faith and say, Behold my God. He is the God of grace, and it is well with me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that you give us these words of comfort, which are more than words that pass away quickly, but they are your enduring and lasting promises by which we live and find strength and hope. And so, Father, I pray for all the discouraged, weary, exhausted saints in this room that they may hold on to your promises, that they may know that you are their gentle shepherd and that you will carry them in your loving arms. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.